If you have God's Word with you, please turn to Hebrews chapter 5 as we pick up on the exposition in this great book. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, and we will be reading all the way to chapter 6, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, and all the way to chapter 6, verse 3. And may God plant His eternal Word into our souls. Concerning Him... We have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as your Holy Spirit has inspired the Word of God, so by that same Spirit we ask that He would breathe life into our souls. We pray that you would, by your Spirit, open our eyes to be receptive to your Word, eager to apply it, and to grow by it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Occasionally, the biblical writer will dip his pen in acid and uses mockery sarcasm, and put down to drive home his point. The device may not be obvious, but it occurs more often than the casual reader thinks. One thinks, for example, of the prophet Elijah's taunting the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18.27, this competition of whose God is the true and real God. Elijah sarcastically mocks that Baal may be preoccupied with a plethora of divine activities like traveling or napping or using the bathroom. One finds such sarcasm in other places as well. Perhaps the biblical writer is at his best when describing the divine trauma of Dagon, the god of the Philistines, before the ark of Yahweh, 1 Samuel 5. It says in 1 Samuel 5, 3, that when the Ashtadites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And I believe with a chuckle in his face, the writer must have written his next words. And so they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And we as readers would ask, how ridiculous that the Philistines have put together the broken pieces of their god Dagon. What kind of glue did they use? Surely Elmer's glue wasn't strong enough to put Dagon together. They must have put the Philistines' version of Gorilla Super Glue. Now Jesus too was known to use sarcasm, and perhaps most effectively used when in rebuking the Pharisees. Several times in the Gospel accounts we hear Our Savior asked these experts in the Scriptures, have you not read? Have you not read your own Bible? And you need to feel the weight of Jesus' insult against the religious leaders. What Jesus said against these religious leaders would be like claiming that Wall Street knows nothing about finance. Jesus was making the point that what these religious leaders claim to know best, they in fact know least. 
And because they misunderstood the Bible, they also misunderstand God. Now, as you know, sarcasm is a form of humor. And I have observed that wherever Scripture is surprisingly humorous, it is also deadly serious. There is always a serious point being made when the biblical writer uses humor. And in our text in Hebrews, the writer uses sarcasm and portrays them as toothless infants who have to be nurtured with milk. And it is with some biting irony that the author of Hebrews calls them babies who need to go back to the bottle instead of chewing on solid food. It is all calculated, you see, to shame them with the hopes of awaking them to press on to maturity. Now I, as a dad, use this kind of sarcasm at times with my sons. While my youngest requires us to hold him and sing songs to him before going to bed, my oldest is at an age where, and wait, I might add, that is just not appropriate anymore. But out of jest, I'll take my 85-pound son, and I'll hold him up struggling, and I'll sing him some songs, and as I'm doing so, my son will reply back, hey, I'm not a baby. But more seriously, as parents, there he goes right now, there are times when you, in a sharp tongue, will remind your child that they are behaving in a way that is appropriate for a little baby. We use this kind of irony and sharp rebuke as an effective tool for them to grow up. It is much like the experienced teacher who senses when students are no longer absorbing the lesson material. He knows that the students do not always advance in learning skills and that sometimes a word of rebuke or correction is very much in place. And so the teacher will be sharp in their words. Did you learn anything this year? Must we go back to the ABCs? Didn't you learn this back in kindergarten? And so the words of the author of Hebrews, who is a preacher and teacher to his congregation, uses pointed and scolding words. Something has gone drastically wrong in the learning process. And by every measure, the readers should have graduated. They should have progressed to the next level but they have failed their examinations because of a lack of interest, diligence, and adequate preparation. The author had planned to continue his teaching on the rich teaching on the high priesthood of Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. However, the material is too advanced for his readers. The theology is too deep to grasp, not because of the writer's lack of skill, but more so because of their inability to understand. And so the author needs to pause and make sure that they go back to the basics and with the mixture of rebuke and encouragement to prepare them to give their full attention to the teaching of Christ as the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He wants to say so much more about Jesus Christ, but he has to prepare them in order to receive what he has to say. Now chapter 511 begins this necessary interruption that will take us all the way through chapter 6, verse 20. This is the third section now of exhortations and warnings. But this is the most severe in its tone. Perhaps it can be argued that it is the most severe warning that appears anywhere in the New Testament. Now he'll first deal with their immaturity, and the next week with the danger of outright apostasy from falling away from the faith. The goal for our text today is to have something to the effect of us to stop sticking our thumbs in our mouths and say, hey, I'm not a baby, and press on to growth. Now, we left off last week 
from Pastor Minjay on the greatness of our high priest as the author of eternal salvation. And Jesus, we learn, was categorically different from all the priests of the Levitical order. For in verse 10, he was being designated or called by God as the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the author wishes to elaborate further on Christ according to the order of Melchizedek. There is much to explain to these Hebrew Christians regarding the advantages of having Christ as our priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek because their knowledge of the priesthood was reserved or only, only limited to the Levitical order. And the author pauses and he says that this is difficult to explain to them. Not because the subject matter of Christ's high priesthood is itself above one's head, but the real difficulty lay in the hearers. Since you have become dull of hearing. Now dull of hearing is filled with colorful language. It can be used of the numb limbs of an animal which is ill. It can be used of a person who has the imperceptive nature of a stone. Yet the author is not using it to refer to physical hearing, but to that condition to which the prophet Ezekiel diagnosed amongst God's people, who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Dull of hearing is that condition of laziness or sluggishness in understanding. One commentator puts it stupidly forgetful. It is not simply mental laziness, but spiritual resistance. There is this apathetic attitude to the gospel and an unwillingness to work out the deeper implications of the gospel in their lives. Being dull of hearing is a serious problem and is caused by a lack of nourishment. Now you'll see this in verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. What he is saying is that there is both physically and spiritually the possibility of the tragedy of arrested development and growth. Now, as the late Scottish preacher Eric Alexander has said, this arrested growth is due to a lack of diet. And that lack of diet is due to a lack of appetite. And that lack of appetite is due to a sluggishness in the area which we are fed spiritually. And the means by which we are fed spiritually is through the hearing of God's word. And you see, it all goes back to this rebuke where the writer says, you have become dull of hearing. Now throughout Hebrews, hearing the word of God is of vital importance. Remember how the letter began. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his son. For this reason, Hebrews 2 1 says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Three times in chapter 3, Quoting Psalm 95, the author warns, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And this hearing of the word of God is punctuated with this divine judgment when it says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But now the author speaks personally. 
and pointing directly to them, he says, you have become dull of hearing. You may be hearing all of these sermons. And perhaps like Ezekiel's hears, you are even pleased with the sound of the gospel, as you would be with any delightful music. But are you careful to apply that to yourselves in your own lives? Do you examine yourselves by it? Do you labor to treasure it in your hearts? Do you pray over it? Do you make the subject of your conversation with your families, with your buddies? And is that the subject of your meditation throughout the day? And if not, this is the reason you are sluggish and I become dull of hearing. And I'll tell you the great importance and implication of this. When under the same ministry of the word, there are some almost before your eyes who grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and grow into maturity, into greater likeness to Christ. And they go on from a sapling to a full-grown oak, stable men and women of God who can stand tall against the hurricanes and the storms of temptation and the flesh and afflictions, and who have put childish things away and grow up into adulthood. While some are growing under the same ministry of the word, there are others who have begun to eat solid food early on, but now are back on the bottle. The early converted years of their eagerness to listen and to respond to the word of God had cooled. Now they were no longer ready listeners. Other things and other interests and vices have captured their attention. Now we know too that this condition was a developing one. They have become dull of hearing. He says, for by this time you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. What a rebuke. What a scolding. A sufficient time has passed since their conversion for them to be well grounded in the faith. They should have been spiritually mature to be able to teach others. Now this doesn't mean, of course, that they're expected to be the office of a preacher or an elder. Not at all. This is more of the person who doesn't teach or who doesn't disciple anyone because of the worn-out excuse, I don't feel adequate, adequate enough. Why? Because their ability to understand spiritual truth remains at the ABC level. That's what the author is talking about here. It's a very serious issue when someone is sluggish or reluctant to listen to the Word of God. The issue is not remaining as babies. But the issue is going back to being a baby again. That is what backsliding is, you see. The truth is there is no such thing as a static Christian because we are all heading in one or two directions. We are either progressing or regressing. We are either moving forward or we are falling back. We are either climbing or we are falling. Listen, this whole idea of a status quo Christian is a great delusion. It doesn't exist. And the author is alarming them to go, going back to babyhood that might soon characterize their very selves. It is very true, friends, that Jesus said that the greatest thing in the world is the childlike spirit. But there is a world of difference between the childlike and the childish spirit. Peter Pan may make for a great entertainment on the stage, but the person who refuses to grow up makes a tragedy in real life. 
This is the spiritual tragedy that the author longs for us to move on from. And so we would do all well to ask some very simple yet profound questions. Are we growing? Are we advancing? Can we say we have grown more in the knowledge of Christ and in holiness more than a year ago, five years ago, 20 years ago? Are we more mature than we were at any given point in the past? The great danger, according to the author of Hebrews, is backsliding into spiritual infancy. And this is an urgent matter and of great concern to him. And he gives reasons for this. Firstly, implied in the text is the fact that Christian life, by definition, is a developing and growing life. Now, this seems so obvious, yet we are so prone to forget it. You see, this puts Christianity in an entirely different category from all different philosophies and ideas and teachings. There is doctrine and teaching, to be sure, but it is much more than that. Christianity is life. The New Testament constantly emphasizes this vital principle, you must be born again says our Lord himself to Nicodemus. This is what we're reminded of everywhere in the Bible. When one becomes a Christian, he or she is born again. They receive new life. Peter deals with the same truth when he writes, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. This teaches us that the whole principle of growth and development and to mature, that we start as infants. And from that beginning, we are to grow and develop and to mature. Yet in spite of this foundational truth, there is a tendency on our part to forget it. And I might add a fatal tendency to assume that once we become Christians, we have arrived. Conversion is not the end, but a beginning. And we must rid the idea that becoming a Christian is the end of the story and that we are now complete. This, that is why there is this constant push from the apostles to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the second reason the author gives for why this state of spiritual immaturity and backsliding is so urgent is because if they remain babies, they will be unskilled in the word of righteousness. Look at verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed or skilled to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. And by this, we have an example of the author's knowledge of what is today described as child psychology. There is nothing more characteristic of a child than being unskilled in life. They are unaccustomed to the realities of life because, for one, they lack the knowledge and how to understand situations, and they lack the experience of having gone through the rigors of life. And God's Word teaches the way of righteousness. It teaches us about who God is. It teaches us about the world that God created. It teaches us about the salvation that he has accomplished for us. It teaches us that the only way that sinners can make sense of their life or find true purpose is by trusting in Jesus Christ who died for them and was raised for them and to restore them to righteousness. And having told them the way of salvation by faith in Christ, it teaches us how to live as Christians. That's why the word of God is called here the word of righteousness. And as you study the word of God, what happens? You become skilled in the way of living the Christian life. You become more and more accustomed to the truths of God. It's not just that your head gets filled up with Bible knowledge and facts, though it is good to have your head filled with Bible facts. But it's that those Bible facts 
Make you wise unto salvation when applied by the Holy Spirit to your heart and you begin to see your life as God sees it. And everything starts making sense when you start looking at the world through the lens of the Bible. And you're able to make sense of your own life and what is pleasing to God because of what the Word of God teaches. But since you become dull of hearing and apathetic to the Word of God, you're unskilled in the word of righteousness just as a child is, is what the author is saying. Now just think of some characteristics of a child as a, as a result of not being skilled in the word of righteousness. A child is characterized by a lack of self-control. It is because of this that parents have to control them. Children are creatures given to impulses and moods. They know little about self-discipline, and they are not able to master or to control themselves. The book of Proverbs tells us that the man who can control his own spirit is greater a man than he who can capture a city. Self-control is a difficult task, one that can only be mastered by the Spirit producing that fruit by means of the Word of God. The child does not control itself. It expresses itself. It wants, it wants something, and it wants it immediately. And it shows its, dis its temper and displeasure if it is refused. A child is unable to control their emotions. And being unskilled in the word of righteousness makes you like a child with lack of self-control. Another characteristic of a childhood is that a child likes entertainment, excitement, distractions. This was true of all of us in childhood. The child cannot stay still and focus for more than five minutes without a desire to be entertained. The child tends to build an, a secret antagonism even to its own parents. And if they are good parents, that is, because they exercise discipline. Good parents are always enforcing measures of restraint. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can only watch one episode of Paw Patrol. Only one snack. How much nicer is that favorite uncle or auntie who comes occasionally a week and gives them everything they want and refuses nothing. The nice auntie or uncle comforts them when they are scolded and plays with them and entertains them. Those uncles and aunties seem much more nicer and kinder than dad and mom. But unfortunately, this all tends to be true of us as Christians. How much more enjoyable it is to be entertained than to go through the heart and painful work of a lesson. This is the reason why churches have this element of entertainment and excitement in their services. They seek to pamper their church attenders with what is popular and what is easy and to give them bite-sized little snacks for you to munch on. What about this childish ment mentality of entertainment in us? I heard from one research that the iPhone users unlock their phones on average 80 times per day. In addition, it was shown that the average iPhone user checks their phone between six and seven times per hour or about once every 10 minutes. Do we once in a day open our Bibles to read and to meditate and study? Our days are constantly being interrupted by texts and tweets and push notifications and ads and Instagram posts, emails, and on and on. Our brains are being trained to crave entertainment and distraction. What else is characteristic of a child? Well, children are very fearful because of their ignorance. They are unskilled in seeing reality from fantasy. They have wild imaginations. 
It is not unusual for children to have night terrors. They're usually afraid of the dark, and they imagine some monsters crawling out from under their bed. And children who are ignorant of the Word of God are also full of fears and anxieties and worries. They imagine things. Terrifying things are going to happen. They cannot step out into the world and do great things for God because of fear of what might happen to them. But remember the words from the Apostle Paul to the Romans. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. He says to Timothy, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of sound mind. Christians, you need to get rid of that childish fear by becoming skilled in the word of righteousness. Oh, but there's more. Childhood is characterized by their liability to be deceived and misled. Look at verse 14. But solid food is for the mature. And remember, he said to some of the people that you're not mature, that you need milk and not solid food. But he says regarding the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now the characteristic emphasized here is the ability to discern. And this ability belongs to adulthood as they gain experiential knowledge to discriminate between good and evil and are able to make sound decisions. But a child tends to believe everything it is told. They are at the mercy of any imposter that comes along. Now Paul wrote about this very thing to the Ephesians. Would you turn to Ephesians chapter 4? Go to Ephesians 4 and look at verse 13. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This is the goal, right? To be a mature man and a mature woman. Then he says in verse 14, but as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You see, children are those who are tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. They do not understand and don't have the ability to discern. Now, how true this is of those who remain children, spiritually speaking. We are living in an age that is characterized by confusion and uncertainty. And while man has had never had so much knowledge about the world, as he possesses today, perhaps he has never had so little knowledge of God's word. That is why our tar- times are marked by confusion, a lack of discernment, and its inevitable result of immaturity and superficiality. I was teaching to the youth group this past Sunday of how Jesus taught of the end times, and he said of one of those signs that the end is near is that many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. And I noted that the key word is many. Many will be misled. Wave after wave, deceivers will come. They will either claim to be God or to be the Messiah, or they will claim to be the spokesman of the Messiah. They will come and offer us a false gospel with false claims and with false solutions and offer false hopes to the world. 
They will speak about God. They will speak about religion. They will even quote the Bible. But they will present a counterfeit salvation with a bogus gospel. They will even label their message as gospel, but it will be not the gospel of the Bible. And they will promise to deliver men and society from all their problems by, by their trouble, by their religion. They will even say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They will claim to have all the answers, and they will claim to be the ones that fix the world's problems. They will be charismatic. They will be winsome, appealing, and they will disarm you with a smile on their face. And however smiling and winsome they appear to be, the question you need to ask is, what are they teaching? What is their doctrine? The Apostle John wrote, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In our day, how many teachings and messages appear plausible on the surface, but are truly insidious? And soul destroying. How many are duped and carried about by every wind of doctrine? Why is this? It is because, as Lloyd Jones insightfully comments, because they do not have a standard. They do not know how to test doctrine. They do not have knowledge. You cannot test anything without knowledge. You see, the child's liability to be misled arises because it doesn't have a standard. It lacks a standard because it lacks knowledge. Now, there are some people who earn a living by testing. They test wine. They test coffee. They even test video games. Now, they must possess a certain knowledge to do that, and knowledge comes from having a standard. And it is exactly the same in regards to the truth of discerning good and evil. Without a standard, what one cannot test or evaluate anything. And the failure to test uh, means that you are lacking in judgment. And it means that you will be an easy prey for all kinds of false teachings. This is not a new complaint against God's people. The prophet Hosea was given a message by God to deliver to the children of Israel. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. The prophet Isaiah shared the same sentiment as Hosea when he said, An ox knows its owner. A donkey knows its, its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The root cause of their spiritual decline is their lack of understanding. This was true then, and it is true now. And if you do not have a knowledge of God's word, you don't have a standard. And without a standard, you cannot discern anything. You see, the author of Hebrews is concerned to impress the characteristics of a child on their minds because if they do not realize and are aware of their backsliding back to babyhood, they would never grow out of it. Well, what then does he go on to say in chapter 6? Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. That's the whole aim. That's the goal. He wants the Hebrew Christians to grow up. He does not pander to them. He says it's time to leave behind the Similac, the infant formula. It's time to stop sucking on our thumbs. It's time to grow up. The reason for this sarcastic, sharp words and calling them babies was to rouse his audience to stop acting like babies and start growing into maturity. 
Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. What does he mean by leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ? Does he mean that we don't need the basics of the gospel and we move on to greater theological truth? No, not at all. You never forget Jesus and the gospel. To leave the elementary teaching about Christ does not mean to abandon them any more than a student who has learned the ABCs can dispense with the alphabet. The letters of the alphabet are indispensable in any communication or writing of the most advanced learning. And so also the author is saying that the elementary teaching of Christ is the basic ABCs of the Christian truth. They are the foundation. The point is that the foundation is not the stopping place, but it is the place to build upon in order to progress to maturity in Christ. And the author tells you what he means by the elementary teaching about the Christ. It's listed right here in verses 2 and 3. According to the author of Hebrews, here are the ABCs of the Christian faith. Note that these come in pairs. First, there is repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. This refers to the believer's conversion. Repentance and faith describes the believer's response to the gospel. In the gospel, the sinner learns that all of his efforts to please God, however good, are merely dead works. And his only hope for salvation is a complete change of attitude. He must stop trusting in his own righteousness and cast himself upon the mercy of God and by faith turning to Christ in salvation. And so if you're not a Christian here today, this is the first thing that you must do. Repent from your dead works and place your faith in Jesus who died and rose again on behalf of sinners. The second pair involves ordinances or ceremonies of instruction about washing and laying on of hands. The washing may be a reference to John's teaching in 1 John 5, 7-8, used of water baptism as the first public ordinance of the Christian life. And then the laying on of hands is closely tied to water baptism amongst the early Christians and symbolized the imparting of the Holy Spirit. And taken together, they have to do with our empowerment for living the Christian life. The final pair of this list of Christian basics is the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. It deals with the destiny of believers after death. Essential to the Christian faith is the resurrection that awaits us after the grave, the hope of glory because of the one who holds the keys to death, that is Jesus who is alive forevermore. Indeed, all who are dead will be raised in that great day of judgment. Those who are in Christ will be received to everlasting joy and those who rejected Christ in horrific condemnation forever. This is the summary of the basics of the Christian faith. The first pair deals with conversion, how sinners are saved by God's grace to salvation. The second deals with sanctification, the process by which believers grow in holiness. The third deals with glorification, the blessed hope of glory where all believers in Christ will be transformed with glorified bodies and living in the new heavens and a new earth. Now this is all basic. This is foundational. And this is what the author is seeking to say. Must I come and tell you all this again? <laughs> Must I tell you that all of your works are like filthy rags to God? Must I tell you to stop trying to do things in order to make yourself acceptable to God? Must I tell you that only by the blood of Christ you are saved? Must I tell you that since our future is secure in the resurrection of the dead, you do not need to fear? You see, these Hebrew Christians... They were stuck on the elementary things. And since they were stuck on the ABCs, 
They were not ready to appreciate what it means to have Jesus as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And that tells us that there was no evidence of growth from some of these Hebrew Christians. There was no evidence of development. There was no signs of greater Christ-likeness. No increase in our understanding. They were at the same place they were 10, 20 years ago. They have stopped at the elementary teachings. Sure, they have understood the basic of the gospel. They have, as Augustine said, dipped their feet in the shallows, but have not plumbed deeper. They have not advanced beyond the basics. But what about you, my Christian friend? Does this exhortation speak to you where you are at this moment? You must ask yourselves, am I growing? Are you maturing? Is your knowledge of God and His Word more than it was a year ago? Am I at the same place as I was when I first became a Christian? There can be no standing still in the Christian life. It is told on his pocket Bible that Lord Protector of England, Oliver Cromwell, had a model written in Latin that said, He who ceases to be better, ceases to be good. That's what the author is trying to impress upon us. That we need to strive towards greater maturity. We need to leave behind the elementary principles and press forward to greater maturity. And he's making the same point that Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 3. Would you turn back to Ephesians chapter 3? And in this prayer from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians, he prays in verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. What for? To what purpose? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and where does that knowledge lead to look at verse 19 it fills you up to all the fullness of God what does that mean it means that it matures you it grows you God's fullness is the perfection as he himself is the standard and so when Paul makes this prayer that we would come to know the vast dimension of the love of Christ that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God he is praying that they may be all that God wants them to be spiritual maturity that is Paul's goal that is the goal of the Christian life it does not stop at being converted and knowing that your sins are forgiven and then remain content with being that for the rest of your life. No, it means entering into and developing unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of God himself. You see, what Paul is shooting for is the same thing that the author of Hebrews is aiming for. Knowledge of the love of God in Christ that produces maturity. But how can we obtain this advanced knowledge of the Son of God. How can we grow and mature? The author gives the answer. Solid food. Strong meat. Solid food is sound doctrine. They are the deep truths of the faith. Go back to Hebrews and look at verse 14 again of chapter 5. It says, solid food is for the mature who but because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil through practice that is 
through training like an athlete so that they are in their peak condition. The believer must have their senses trained. See, diligence, effort, self-discipline. Discipline yourself, says the Scriptures, for the purpose of godliness. How may our senses be trained? It's by the use of frequent study of the Holy Scripture. Just as the psalmist says that the man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night is blessed. You see, in growing and maturity, there is no substitute for the disciplines of Bible study and scripture reading and meditation. We cannot bypass the handbook of God that he has given to us and then expect us to grow in our own way. We must be like the prophet Jeremiah who ate from the solid food of God's word and he said, your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the light of my heart. Francis Bacon, one of the leading figures of the English Renaissance, He observed that some books are to be tasted, some books are to be chewed, and some are to be thoroughly digested. Jeremiah understood that the Bible is the one book to be devoured. When the elders designed this worship service, not merely the sermon, but the whole service, we want that juicy steak hanging off the side of the platter for you. But the only question for you is, are you coming to eat? Or to change the metaphor, are you like a baby who eats meat for the first time and spits it out because it's too hard to swallow? God's word, the strong, solid food of his word is meant to be devoured, to be enjoyed, to be daily accustomed to it by feeding upon it. And lest you think that growing is all dependent on me, on my own effort, my own discipline, the author is quick to point out that true key, the true key to growth is the hidden energy of the Holy Spirit. When the author says in verse 1 of chapter 6, let us go on to perfection, to maturity, the passive voice draws attention to the need for the personal surrender to the active influence of the Holy Spirit rather than one's personal effort. Let us go on means literally let us be carried forward. The same verb is used by Peter who spoke of the prophets of old who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The primary thought of the author of Hebrews then is to be carried towards maturity together by God. That God must be involved if we are to grow is stated clearly in verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. True knowledge of God and maturity in our growth then is not learned from books, although they do help us. They are not learned in theological seminaries and education classes, though that should be encouraged. It is not merely an increased facts about God. No, the knowledge of God is a personal knowledge because it is knowledge of a personal God. You and I then will grow in maturity and knowledge when we seek to know Him in a spirit of dependence upon Him and who ask for His Spirit to lead us into the truth. Therefore, beloved, let us stop dilly-dallying with everything that hinders our growth. Let us leave behind childish toys and behavior. Let us shake off our sluggish dole of hearing. Let us press on to maturity. Let us grow in the grace and knowledge of God. Let us exercise and train our senses by God's true and living word in order to exercise and strive for maturity so that we would all attain to the measure of the stature 
which belongs to Jesus Christ in the fullness of him. And as we do so, let's pray, Lord, you must do this for me. Lord, do this for me. Enable me to grow. Enable me to grow. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is like a mirror to our souls and exposes all the warts and imperfections of our lives. We especially see the way your word reveals to us the dullness of our hearing of it, our apathy and our reluctance to read it and to treasure it and apply it. We confess that we have allowed the foolishness of a child to play a role in our lives. And we confess that even that we have been content to stay where we are at in our spiritual lives. Have mercy upon us, O God, according to your loving kindness. Cleanse us of our dullness of hearing. Help us stop drinking the milk and help us to go on eating solid food and to be skilled in the word of righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.